I remember I just started, you know, tears is a common thing for me nowadays. I never used to cry much, but with the drugs I want actually make you cry more. They make, they make you much more emotional. And I was stopped there and I thought, I can't go on. I cannot go on. It was almost like that moment on the Orpington Marathon again, when if a car came past now, I'll get in and I'll just go. But the difference was, I said, oh, I can't go on. And I thought, if I, but if I stop now, everyone that's helped me get here, my wife who sacrificed money and time to let me train, my doctor, my physio, even Rory Coleman that put some energy into me, I'm letting them down. And then add to the fact I've been sponsored by loads of people, I'd feel a fraud. And finally, I had this real burning desire to prove to other people with any kind of challenge in their life, especially prostate cancer, but any challenge, that you only give up when it's physically not possible. If mentally you can do it, you, oh yeah, well you keep on going, you keep on going. That, my friend, was Kevin Weber. And this is the Inspirational Runners Podcast. Hey everyone, hope you're all well. My name's Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. We have Kevin Weber on the show this week, one of the most inspirational runners I've had the pleasure of meeting. Diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2014 and was told that he only had two years left to live. During his chemotherapy, to the shock of his doctor, Kevin started to train for a marathon. Not only did he finish it, but he followed it up with London Marathon only two weeks later. But Kevin being Kevin, that wasn't enough. He then went on to train throughout his treatment for one of the hardest foot races on the planet, the Marathon de Sables, which is a gruesome six-day event covering 251 kilometers through the Sahara Desert. Not only did he complete it, but he continued to return year after year, defying all odds to take part in the MDS. In 2020, the race was canceled due to COVID-19, so Kevin decided not to be beaten and to run the 251 kilometers in his garden where he raised more than 30,000 pounds, which is a staggering amount, but it's only a small percentage of what he has already raised for prostate cancer. Before we start, I'd just like to give a shout out to Moor Mountain Adventures. If you're lucky enough to live in Ireland, then check out our Facebook page where we offer a wide variety of hikes to suit all abilities. Really looking forward to the wild camping expeditions and two-day guided hikes where we provide top-of-the-range camping equipment such as North Face. It's going to be an epic year in the hills, so if you're interested, check us out on Facebook at Moor Mountain Adventures. We are already over 50% booked for the 2021 season, so make sure you don't miss out. Not to delay you any further, it's with great pleasure I give you Kevin Weber. So that one morning I came out my front door to go for a little run. And in the road, there was always some signs saying one is in the road. And all these arrows on lampposts. I think, well, where I live, I, I live in suburbia, you know, like Orpington. Um, and no one ever races down my road. So I followed the arrows. And bear in mind, this was about 6.30 in the morning on a Saturday morning. I followed the arrows. And it's kept on going, kept on going in a straight line sort of south. And I ran about I don't know, 10, 15k, and I thought, well, I just can't keep going. So I turned around. As I almost got back to my house, someone came towards me running with a, a like a little rucksack thing on. I thought, hey, what's, what's all this? So I kept on running the wrong way past my house, following the arrows in the wrong direction. And more people were coming towards me, but kind of one or two at a time with a, a minute's gap. And I ran about another four or five K and then turned around and ran with someone on their own. And I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, we're running London to Brighton. And I said, right, wow, past my house. This is like literally past my front door. <laughs> I thought, that sounds really cool. So I thought, and, and I checked this guy for 4K and I said goodbye to him because I was knackered by then. And uh, I thought, well, next year I've got to do this. So in 2014, I entered um, London to Brighton 
run and I entered the Brighton Marathon again, which I'd done already, as a kind of a warm-up race. And the previous year at Brighton, I wanted to beat four hours. I'd done about, I did about four hours, four minutes. And I kept on running out of gas and then walking. I thought, I've just got to do a race where I don't walk. That's the secret of breaking four hours, is not to walk. So I learned to pace myself a bit better. And I did that marathon in April, it would have been 2014. I did it in uh, 3.48. And I remember when I finished, one, I hadn't walked at all, and two, I had loads left in the tank. And I remember being quite cross with myself because I probably could have gone 10 minutes faster. I absolutely had smashed it in terms of the training I'd done, the way everything had been great, apart from I just hadn't pushed myself enough on the race. I was so keen on beating four hours, I didn't realise I might have been able to beat sort of 3.40, but hey. Um, and then I did the, then I did the London to Brighton a month later. One of the reasons why Brighton's my favourite marathon is not because the whole course is fantastic, because it's not, there's some real grim bits, but the last two miles from Hove to the finish line of Brighton, you're on the seafront, and they don't have barriers until about half a mile to go. So it's just the crowds. And if there's four of you running four abreast, the crowds kind of open up. And if there's only one of you, they'll narrow down. It's a bit like, um, Tour de like Luke Skywalker. <laughs> Luke, like Luke Skywalker in the Death Star. He's going to try and drop the old proton torpedo down the, down the hatch. It feels really narrow and tight. And it's and because of that, it makes you feel like you're going really fast. It's just amazing. It really, really Showing your age really there, by the way. There. Sorry, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So that you must have been elated with that, though a little bit of frustration because you always feel you can you could have pushed a bit harder, but you don't know, do you? Is that there's that thing in your head? Well, I wonder if I did go quicker, would have blown up. Um, but it was a great race. So then you signed up for the London and Brighton. What is that? A hundred k. Hundred k, yeah. A hundred k. So how so did that did it, go? So I did it with a friend. Um, he didn't do the um, Brighton Marathon with me, which is before, but he was fitter than me, and just tactfully made that was my my second ultramarathon if you like, there's that three-fourths marathon which is about 28 miles and I really messed that up so I knew it was going to be harder than a road marathon but off we set and we were jogging quite comfortably, we got to the halfway point or 56k point where you had lunch and it was, I felt good, you know we'd run up the hills, all the wrong things, run up hills and just kept going, hadn't walked much at all and then sat down and then suddenly was absolutely worn out I also had no idea about checkpoints. We'd already had two checkpoints before that. And we'd sat down for like 15 minutes and filled our faces with chocolate bars. And the halfway stage, there was enormous amount of food. You could eat whatever you liked. And there was pies and sausages. And I remember having loads and loads of different food. And then we set out again, and it was chucking down with rain. And it was, it's, uh, I can't remember what place it's called, but it's where they run in Halloween, one of these Fright Night things. So you went through the woods, and it was gloomy and, and sort of dull because of the rain and there was like crashed aeroplanes and skulls everywhere and bodies hanging by the neck because it was all set up for these October um, Halloween things. It was a bit sort of surreal but I had nothing left in the tank so the last 44k was really really hard and, and I still made those mistakes of stopping everywhere for far too long. So I did it in about 15 hours, 15 and a bit hours and in hindsight I've done it in 13 but I just spent too long stopping. We, we even had a massage at checkpoint six. There was a free massage with no queue, so why, why don't we? So we had a 15 minute massage. And why? We didn't need one. This was um, yeah. that naivety. My, my that first naivety. 100k, I got to the halfway point. Um, I'm going to mention, <laughs> I'm going to get stick for mentioning it, the, the race to the stones. Um, but I stopped at the first, oh, sorry, the halfway point, and people could finish 50k. 
at that race and people were getting their medals. I was looking at them getting their medals. I knew I had another 50k to go. But I was almost 40 minutes at the checkpoint walking around the big food stations and it just dawned on me, geez, what am I actually doing here? I actually haven't even eaten anything because I'm, I'm walking around. I don't fancy anything. And <laughs> I kicked my ass out and went, geez, I just lost 40 minutes. Like over the second 50k, that's a lot of time. Yeah. So you, even yeah, a minute a mile, that. you know, it's a minute a mile. You're not going to pull that back, but... Um, you learn these things. Yeah, race, you learn these things. Yeah, yeah. I've done race the stones um, a few times now, but I've never done it in one go. So it's it's a really good place to stop at the halfway point. It's a really good evening because there's loads of food, bit of beer, the tents to put up a really nice place to look out down the, the valley. So I've never done the hundred k straight through, but I've done it in two fifty k stages. So it's a good race. It's a beautiful course. Like as you, the thing I like about it is it gets about a thousand people. So it's a real mm. good community, 100K. You know, there's always plenty of people around you. Yeah. Yeah, apart from that, there's that style, isn't there, about four or five K in where everyone gets stuck at the same style and you can't get over. That's not so good. <laughs> so that brings you to 2014. Um, you know, you're quite an active person, enjoying your marathon path. Um, you've actually found what you enjoy most, maybe a little bit of ultra running. And the marathons were a bit of a stepping stone into that journey that a lot of people take. Um, then you start having some symptoms. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So, so, uh, so having done London Brighton and uh, London uh, Brighton Marathon, I then thought, what should, what should I do next year, 2015? I thought, why don't I do the wall? It's like a rat race, race, um, Hadrian's 120k, Hadrian's wall. I thought that'd be good. You know, I fancy that. I've, I've always <laughs> wanted to see Hadrian's wall. Well, that that'd be a different kind of race, and I'll do it in two stages, a bit like uh, race the stones. You're going to stop at the halfway point. I'll, I'll enjoy that. And, and I, I I was a corporate bank manager. Day my day job was pretty full on. You know, I was probably at my desk most days at seven, and I wasn't getting home until nine ten at night. So so training was quite tough. So every year I just trained to do two races and no more. And then uh, August 2014 on summer holiday with the kids and uh, I was 49 years old. My kids were 16, 14 and nine. And uh, I started get out, getting up in the night for a wee and I just put it down to the fact that I was on holiday and didn't think much of it. And then that carried on. Um, and then I felt a bit uncomfortable when I sat down. It's like I was sitting on a golf ball, uh, five minutes one day, 10 minutes the next, not at all the next, an hour the next. No, I couldn't work out why. And so I did what most men don't do, and I went to the doctors in September, and he gave me a blood test, and uh, what I call a doctor's special handshake. I uh, note to to anyone, by the way, when, you, when you're coming for your, if you're coming for a doctor's special handshake, if he's got chubby fingers and sobbing rings, do not let him do it. <laughs> anyway, um, anyway, uh, he, he did a, a blood test called a PSA test, and. Um, any sort of normal bloke should score between one and three. My dad had prostate cancer and he scored 12 at the peak and his was curable. Um, he had some radiotherapy and he was cured. Uh, I had this blood test. I came back a week later to results and my score was 342. And he looked at me and said, oh, I'm really sorry. He said, uh, you've probably got prostate cancer. And so then you go on this horrible whirlwind of um, emotions and um, tests and scans and biopsies. And the thing about prostate cancer is, 
if it's a bit like a marathon run actually when you do your first one everyone says it's the crowds that keep you going well with prostate cancer what they say is oh it's the one to get oh it's curable you know oh it's fine you know oh yes you get that when you're like 95 years old it's fine there's no man's disease you die with it not of it and so all the way through these tests i just assumed that that they were working how bad it was and then I was going to have some operation or something and, and I'd be okay. In fact, one of my friends at work had it a year before and, and his was curable. And uh, I think he had an operation to remove his. And, you know, it's six months of nastiness, but then you're, he's okay again. And so, so I go through these tests and I'm a bit nervous. So the worst thing that's going is the biopsy. The biopsy is you all in this room and... There is no dignity anymore. <laughs> and there's this thing sitting, it looks, I can only describe it as uh, a king-sized dildo sitting on this bench. And I'm looking at it and it's got some wires attached to it. And I'm thinking, that's going on my back, that's going on my backside, isn't it? And there's this doctor, and this doctor says, right, okay, um, you just get on your knees uh, on that bed. And then there's these two sort of reasonably attractive nurses in their 20s. So that's what I say about no dignity. Here I am, a 49-year-old bloke, about to have something stuck on my backside for the first time in my life by two 25-year-old fit nurses. It's not, as I said, there's no dignity. Yeah, at least at least they were fit nurses. Come on. That's, well, that's one I don't bad know. I'd, I'd, oh, no, not really, because you just, you don't want to be a wimp in front of, you know, anyway. So you're there, and and, and I can only describe it as, um, not I've ever done this next bit, by the way, but it feels like, I imagine, if you had elastic band flicks at your gonads because what this truncheon does is it fires 18 needles one at a time through your bowel into your prostate grabs a bit of your prostate and rips it off and pulls it back so you have this 18 times and there's no anesthetic they can give you for it because it's just too far up there so anyway nasty but i don't want to put people off having it because ultimately that's the idea of that is to potentially save your life you know so, uh, so the because the, the key thing, as you mentioned there, is trying to capture this early, isn't it? That's a key absolutely, thing. absolutely. And I'll I'll talk about that in a second. So, so I then um, go and see the doctor on the sixth of November, twenty fourteen. So what's that? Six years ago, two days ago. And I'm with my wife, and I walk in, and there's a little nurse there as well. And I think, well, that's a bit strange. And I sit down. And I was expecting to be told that I was going to be in hospital and have some operation or whatever. And finally, I've gone and bought some pajamas, so I don't wear pajamas. So I bought a pair because I thought I might need those for hospital. Um, and the doctor looked at the screen, looked at me, clearly hadn't looked at anything before I turned up. So all right, and he's almost talking as he was looking. He said, "Oh, well, that's uh, that's not a good score. Oh, yeah, okay, that's not great. That's not great." He said, "Oh." Well, um, yeah, you've got prostate cancer and uh, and, it, and, it, and it spread. And I said, oh, I said, uh, so how long have I got to live then? Thinking that was, hoping he was going to say, oh, don't be silly, you know, the rest of your life sort of thing. He said, oh, hmm, two years, maybe three to four. And of course, with that, my, my wife and I just burst into tears. Um, and it's funny, I remember that the Macmillan nurse came and gave me a hug and I'm thinking I don't want you to hug me right now it was, it was bizarre I don't I, nothing against Macmillan nurses but there's me going to the worst moment of my life my wife said give me a hug well, I don't need Macmillan nurse give me a hug as well it was kind of it sounds ungrateful but it just was a I, it, it sticks in my head quite a lot 
so so that was that we walked out and um sat in another room in tears and then they said oh well, you need to see a different doctor now um so the doctor i had seen was a uh, urologist urologist a surgeon basically so I now i now had to go and see an oncologist and i went and saw him and he was a bit more upbeat insofar as he said that we can give you some drugs and some we'll give you some chemotherapy and radiotherapy and we might be able to delay it a little bit um but that was that was that and i just thought i said i'm never going to do anything again you know two years my, you know my head was fixated on two years not the three to four we talked about and i came home i had told my dad so my dad was at the time about 82 to my brother I had to explain to my dad because my dad that it wasn't curable because my dad's was obviously was curable and mine wasn't mine was going to kill me so i had to make that explanation um and of course he was upset because if i had hit the target the doctor had given me of two years then the chances are i'd die before him and one of the deals about being a parent is that you don't want to die or expect to die before your kids do, do try after your kids do rather so um you know the kids you should out the kids should outlive you sort of thing and then the then the hardest bit and in front of it was so today's remembrance sunday so it was remembrance sunday and the three kids were here and my little one had been to church pray with the scouts or the you know, scouts cubs and i sat down and told them that you know i was ill and it was incurable and that was probably the hardest thing i've ever done you know to to, to tell a nine-year-old that they probably won't be here when they're 11 it's quite a tough, tough ask. And, and one of the problems about any terminal diagnosis is it takes away your ability to dream. You know, but, and I don't mean that like I'm a dreamer, but all the thoughts you have about, oh, when one day I'll retire, one day my daughter will get married, one day I'll buy a camper van and drive around Europe, or I'll run this race, or I'll buy that house, or I'll move down there, or I'll go and see the Eiffel Tower, whatever, you know, all the things that we all naturally have in a, future plan for ourselves and suddenly you can't have any of those anymore and that was quite tough because you lie in bed not allowing to, yourself to think about things you wanted to do because there was no guarantees um, and so most nights I used to lie in bed crying but I used to wait till my wife had fallen asleep before I started crying because I thought it was not, wasn't fair on her just thinking about all the stuff that was no longer to be and that that was quite that was quite hard it's a very, um, very difficult situation because you want to protect your family as much as possible, but you don't want to feel so isolated as it would make you. Like a, a terminal illness is a very, I'm sure it's very, you felt very isolated as well. And you, you want to be able to share that with the family as much as possible without actually bringing them into that dark place along with you. Yeah, I mean, as far as the kids were concerned, I made a point of being ordinary dad. So like when I told them, the next thing we did was went to the park and played football. Because I wanted to prove to them that right now, nothing's changed. So I wanted to be the normal dad. I didn't want them to start doing things because they were worried about me, because I didn't need that. Um, and I didn't want them, I didn't want to spoil their life any more than I was going to anyway. My wife was a different thing insofar as you know, some people wear their hearts on the sleeve. I do. I, I'll talk to you about anything. I, it doesn't bother me. Other people are quite private about stuff, and I found it quite um, difficult because my wife's way of coping is not to know about things. So she 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 knew that 
where it was, but she didn't want to know what it was like getting there. Um, and she said, you know, if you wake up today and it's a good day, then it's a good day. Don't spoil it by worrying about what might be tomorrow. And I, and I get that. And actually, that's the way I think. But also, I'm quite a practical person, so I like to know what will happen. I don't get emotionally drawn on it. I don't, it doesn't upset me, but I want to know, whereas she doesn't want to know. And that's fair enough. I have, I have no right to spoil the way she wants to live her life. And when I was first, when I was first diagnosed, um, the first couple of days, it was just woe is me. You know, I didn't, I didn't even think about anyone else. It was just poor me. And then I spent probably about two, three months thinking, actually, it's not about me. It's about my family, and woe is my family. And I was upset always about what they wouldn't have. You know, what one of my friends, his dad died of prostate cancer, fair enough, and. Um, he was 16 and I thought about all those things that that might have done with my dad that after the age of 16 that he never had the chance to do with his dad so although that, that kind of made me sad and and then I got to probably January February time and I, I thought this was November I thought well, actually you know where is anyone who's got a challenge in their life it's not just about me and death and you know, any challenge in your life is is not good. So whether, whether it be prostate cancer, whether it be you've lost your job or your girlfriend's left you or you've got no money or the car's crashed, the border's broken, they're all, to you, when it happens, they're all terrible things that you're not quite sure, you're not quite sure how you can um, get over them. So yeah, I, I felt absolutely rubbish for a while. And I, I went on holiday in December. Um, because the doctor said we we're going to start chemotherapy in January. And I paid for it. I hired a lovely house in Woolacombe Bay down in Devon. And my family and uh, two of my mates and their families came down. And we had a fantastic Christmas and New Year. And uh, it was great because I, you know, I thought that might be the last time I ever have a, have a great holiday. And then um, January comes and it's two days before I'm going to start chemotherapy. And chemotherapy, you know, everything you hear about it is true, but I didn't know that then, and I just wasn't looking forward to it. I went for a run, I remember running 20 miles or thereabouts, and just thinking this might be the last time I ever run. You know, it's something I love to do, and I might never be able to run again. And that, that made me quite sad. It was like a real a realisation that something else had been taken away from me, maybe. Um, because one of the things, on a, tangentially, one of the things you can never do again once you have prostate cancer and you start having treatment is, in my world, you can never have sex again. And whilst, and I don't want to talk about sex like it's some deviant thing, you know, it's a, it's a man thing. It, it gives me a sense of of being a, a, a human male. It's even the, even to my wife, it gives her a sense that she's attractive and she's desirable. All that stuff goes, you know, oh, you never do that again. So that's kind of quite a, quite something to take in to not, to feel like you're not a man anymore. And so I, I had the first lot of chemotherapy and, you know, you sit there in a, in a room, there are five other people in the room all having poison pumped into their arms effectively. Um, you know, you just your mouth tastes like metal. Everyone, no one smiles. It's just the most miserable place you could ever want to be in. Um, no one, because no one's that happy about having chemotherapy, I tell you. <laughs> um, 
I was just about to say, it, it's you... a wonder nobody was smiling. I guess yeah. that's it. The chemo is a, can be worse than the disease, isn't it? It's a necessary evil, but it can be worse than the disease. Totally wipes you out. You know, peop- you lose, and as you say, you know, you're losing your hair and your nails and things like that. Bit by bit, the disease is stripping little bits away from you. So you know that uncertainty about running, you know, your sexual life, how it's affecting your body, and then the person that you know who it, the person you think you are, st- you start losing bits and bits of that. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, you know, you just, you know, you lose your hair and your nails crack and your tongue goes black and you can't feel your fingertips or your toes. You feel sick a lot of the time. It's all those things and, and also you're tired all the time. It's just horrendous. But I, so I came home and my wife gave me, you know, drove me home and I remember getting out of the car and I shuffled. I don't know why I shuffled. I think in my head, I was behaving like you had to behave when you had chemotherapy. So I allowed it to tell me what I was going to do. And I sort of sat in a chair at home. My wife bought me dinner. I ate it on my lap. Went to bed, lay in bed. And I, and you, I couldn't see. When you have chemo, they give you so much, so many steroids the day before and the day after that steroids are like having espresso martini sort of thing. You just sit there having espressos and espressos. So you're wide awake, absolutely wide awake, which is not great when you don't want to think about why you're wide awake, but you're wide awake remembering why you're wide awake. <laughs> and the next morning I got up and it was, you know, January, it was miserable outside. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go for a run. And my wife looked at me and said, well, you can't go for a run. I said, well, no, I'm going to go for a run. I, I said, I have a choice. And it, it was almost that, that epiphany in my life that I could either give up and be that victim or I can go for a run and see what happens. So I went for a run, I went to my local park. And bear in mind, I ran 20 miles only, what, three, four days before. I managed three miles. And and they weren't much faster than a walk, really. I guess I had both feet in the air, so that counts as running. But I wasn't going very fast. And I got home, and I felt like I wanted to chuck my guts up. But I wasn't sick. And I felt absolutely worn out. I couldn't believe that trying to run three miles would have made me so tired. Um, but I was... At the same time, I had this sort of, that was the bad bit, but the good bit was I could still run. You know, it, it didn't matter to me it wasn't a marathon. It didn't matter that it wasn't a PB. It didn't matter to me it, was, it wasn't 10 miles. I had been out and I had run with chemo despite what everyone said. And that, so that became a bit of a, a thing. And I started running every other day. And I, I now tried to run a little bit further. So I tried to run four miles and five miles. And I, and now I was carrying a pack. In my pack, I had spare clothes, food, a phone, a big bit of card with my name and number on it in case I collapsed and and money and all this stuff that didn't help my running, of course, that weighed me down. I had about five kilos on my back. Um, but I just felt, and I used to run loops of my house. So I'd run kind of a kilometre away and just run around around my house. So that if it went wrong, at worst, I had a kilometre to get back to my house. Uh, and then I saw a doctor again and I said, look, um, I entered the Brighton Marathon last year uh, when I was healthy and I'm in it, you know, can I run it? And he said, well, don't be serious, I'm like 13 in chemo. He said, no one, no one runs a marathon on your kind of chemo with your kind of cancer. He said, just try and find me someone. So I went away and, and Googled the, the chemo and the cancer and I couldn't find anyone that had done it. So I went back and I said, no, you're right, I can't find anyone, but I'm going to do it anyway. And he said, no, no, you can't. I said, well, why not? 
and he couldn't answer the question. He was, his, his basis for why not was purely that no one else does it, so therefore I couldn't. And so he said, look, I'll tell you what, he said, if you can train for it, you can do it. So I thought, great. So I kept it, so I ran further and further, and along the way I was being ill and have setbacks. And you, the way the chemo cycle works is you have a week where you lose your immune system, a week where you have no immune system, and a week where it gradually builds back up again, but not quite as high as it was before. So it gets worse and worse with every cycle. And I got to week 13 feeling pretty grim. And it had been one cycle been delayed because I'd been so ill. Uh, I'd been admitted to hospital, in fact, because I had no immune system and my temperature was sky high. And I thought, I'm going to have a, get, have a go. And my friend Jim, luckily for me, my friend Jim was with me. He'd entered the marathon as well. And he'd entered it with me, but he wanted to beat a four hour marathon. He'd never beaten in four hours. And he said, oh, don't worry about that. He said, we just stay together and I'll chaperone you all the way around, which was pretty good of him to give up his four hour goal. And he was fit enough to do that. And so he went round and um, loads of my, my brother-in-law flew over from, from Canada to see me, load of friends on work, went to Brighton from London. It was fantastic. And I, I mean, we, we met another guy along the way who had a prostate cancer UK shirt on as well. And his dad had prostate cancer and the three of us my Jim, me and him crossed the line together. I think I did it in 4.36. I mean, just just amazing, you know, just absolutely blew me away um, to finish. I never even thought I'd be there, let alone finish. Um, and, and that was great and real euphoric, um, you know, walked quite a lot of it. And bear in mind that same marathon year before I'd done pretty much 50 minutes faster. Um, but it was a phenomenal time, though, wasn't it? Taking everything into uh, consideration oh. and how your body was, like you know, and it was never about the time. Obviously, it was always about getting across that finish line. Um, Absolutely. But there's an element of you know, this isn't taking my life totally away here. You know, it's it's me actually controlling what's happening next. Abs- yeah, abs- absolutely. And and then I then there's a lady that um, a friend of my son's mum and she said I, I might be able to get you a dodgy place in London Marathon two weeks later and I know you shouldn't do that okay so don't do this at home folks now. yeah don't, don't do this at home don't I know do you it. shouldn't do that yeah. but, but I didn't have very long to live so hey, that's my excuse yeah. and, <laughs> we'll let um, you off for that one so and, and that, so that I, is a good that's a fair point though you know because in your mindset you maybe had another year year and a half most well I didn't I didn't even have that though so in, you know in my head I had two years to live we're already six months in. I've got another six months of treatment, which apparently is going to get worse. And then I've got a year of dying. So kind of part of my head said my life was already over. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, you don't suddenly get to the end of two years and die overnight. You, it goes downhill. So I was waiting for the demise to actually kick in and me to go downhill and die. Um, so running in somebody so, else's number is quite subtle <laughs> with, with those cards. Like you didn't go to Las Vegas, yeah. you know, you didn't start <laughs> loads of heroin, <laughs> you know, you didn't buy a sports car on credit cards that you didn't own, you know, you, you ran in no. somebody else's number. But it was two weeks well, after doing Brighton. Yeah, well, so I, I, the person I was running as was actually someone quite famous. So I was told that um, I, what I couldn't have was the clip on my, you know, on the shoe, the sensor. So that they would never get picked up at a time. And the idea was that therefore no one would pick up this person was running unless they had to look at my number. And that was my biggest fear that someone with the BBC would see the number, look it up and go, that's not blah, 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 that person. <laughs> so anyway, um, 
So, and I remember getting to the, uh, you know, you got the mile at the end, and I did, did that one in, I think, 4.26. I was like 12 minutes faster than wow. the week before, two weeks before. And got out the mile, I was thinking, oh, no, what normally happens to the marathon is you, you cross the finish line, you put your foot up on a little block, and they cut off the timing tag. And I haven't got a timing tag. And then I'm going to have to explain I haven't got it. And then they're going to get all, oh, oh no, that means your time won't be shown. Let's, let's send you somewhere to get your time registered or something. And I had this paranoia. And as I was running up the mile, they said, because this is like the 30th or 25th London Marathon, we're going to let you keep your timing chips this year. So I thought, <laughs> hooray! I'm not, I'm not going to get done for running as someone else. Anyway, so that was that was great. Oh, you know, very emotional. But you know, a marathon um, takes a lot of your body. You know, the chemo obviously takes a lot of your body. Two marathons in a couple of weeks takes a lot out of your body. But you're still able to pursue. That's that pig ignorance coming back again. Yeah. Uh, it was funny because the doctor didn't know I was going to do both marathons. So I got, I had a two and a half week gap before I saw him again. And I saw him, he said, well, did you do it then? I said, oh yeah, I did two actually. <laughs> You know, he couldn't believe it. He was like, no, no, you can't have done two. I said, yeah, I did two. And I told him my times. And, he was, and, and again, for, if you're me, you know, I don't do things, I don't ever do things for pats on the back. But actually right there and then in my life, a pat on the back was what I needed. And him to, people to say that was incredible was great because it just made, it spurred me on. It made me realise I could, I could do more than everyone else up until that moment had told me I could. And so... My, doc- my doctor sat with me and he said, um, so that's that then, is it? You're now you're going to run park runs, right? you know, five kilometre runs and that's... I said, no, no, so I've got this um, other plan. And he said, oh, what's that? I said, oh, it's this race called the, um, the Marathon de Sables. He said, Marathon de Sables, what's that? I said, well, I said, in really simple terms, I said, it's a Marathon Sunday, a Marathon Monday, a Marathon Tuesday, double Marathon Wednesday, Marathon Friday, half Marathon Saturday, you know, in the Sahara, carrying everything on your back, massive sand dunes, stupid temperatures and you remember he looked at me and said why would anyone ever want to do that let alone someone in your situation and it was quite funny and he looked at me and he said i'll tell you what if you can train for it you can do it so um so that was that so i then spent the next uh the next period of time getting ready for that and so when did you decide days, what time of year did you decide what month was it you decided to do that oh okay so this was april and I was going to run it in the following April, so I had a year. Okay. Um, so that was quite a big. That was quite a big statement, for a better word, in your own mind, wasn't it? Yeah. So I always wanted to run the the um, marathon of Sables ever since I read about it in that magazine. And then, uh, about five years before, I bought the James Cracknell DVD. I got it given to me for Christmas because I asked for it, and I made the family watch it. On Christmas Day, and I said I want to do that race. And my wife had a fair point. She just said that if you go and do it, it costs a lot of money, and there's a lot of time training. And have you got the time to train? You know, it's a cost of family holiday. And I thought, yeah, you're right. Actually, I'm being really selfish, so I won't do it. And then, of course, I get ill, and my wife says you've got to go and do it. <laughs> so it was um it was it was a huge attempt, and it gave me something to look forward to, because Remember I said earlier about you lose your ability to dream. Another thing you think about is what's the point? What's the point of knowledge? What's the point of looking after yourself? If you're going to be dead in two years, there is no point. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I do. You know, all these things are just irrelevant. Why do I want to learn anything? You know, why not? 
too many people in my situation that I now know get diagnosed with terminal prostate cancer and they just eat more chips and pies and drink bottles of Jack Daniels and don't ever do any exercise. And you know what? Surprise, surprise, they die in two years mm-hmm. or three months. You know, it, it, it happens. So it, it does surprise me, though. That's one thing. Um, one thing that started me running was a friend of mine who got prostate cancer. Um, and he found it very late, so it spread right through his body, tumour into his brain. Um, and I was surprised about the lack of guidance around his diet and things like that, you know, and he was eating, like, a lot of carry-out food and things like that. And I tried to help and give some guidance on that um, because food and nutrition and how your body's going to react to things does make a big difference, doesn't it? I, I think it's massive, but... We have a, we have a, you know, I love the NHS, okay, NHS, if anyone's watching doctors, nurses, you're fantastic, but, and it's a massive but, the NHS understandably will only tell you things that have been proven in multi, multi-million dollar pound trials where they've been tried and tested for years and years, and a doctor is not allowed to tell you it might help you if you do X or Y, unless it's had stage one two three four trial on it and there isn't the money to do that stuff and therefore some of the stuff that makes sense they won't tell you to do they just keep stood in fact most doctors won't tell you anything unless you ask you have to ask a direct question so i'll, I'll give you an example of my my oncologist who I, he's absolutely amazing by the way my oncologist has kept me alive um he gave me early chemotherapy when it wasn't what normally happens. He gave me early radiotherapy when it not normally happens in my situation. Both of those have since been proved to be the right thing to do. But he took a gamble because he saw trials that were going on that were working. And even though it wasn't protocol, he decided to put me on those things early. And I asked him what supplements I should take because I'd read loads of stuff about supplements. And one of the problems when you're ill is there are a lot of snake oil peddlers. There are people that turn up and say, what you want to do, Kev, is have blue scorpion venom. Venom only comes from Cuba. You want to do this. You want to you know, be taking bicarbonate of soda because there's so many things out there that are not true and actually quite harmful for you. But there are things that make sense. So my doctor said to me, look, I can't really recommend you anything, as in I'm not allowed to. He said, but my, in my personal opinion, he said every human being every day, especially in the UK, you should take vitamin D and a baby aspirin every day. So baby aspirin is 75 milligrams. It's very, very small. There's been aspirin trials before, but on high dose aspirin, and that is not good for you long term, but 75 milligrams is next to nothing. And you know, here we are in a COVID world, and what are they saying we should be taking? Vitamin D. You know, Vitamin D is like an amazing, easy to get hold of drug that costs about 12 pounds for a year's worth over the counter. And most people in the UK need it, and yet we don't take it. It's a good example, so, though. It is a good example, though, COVID, you know, because that's one of my frustrations with it. Um, yes, about lockdown and securing people, but it'd be good to see some things coming out about your immune system and how to get yourself body ready for if you do catch. We actually had Fiona Oaks on the podcast a few months ago who actually done MDS at the same time you did. Um, and that's one thing that she really emphasized on, you know, you know, get an hour extra sleep, get your vitamin D into you, get plenty of um, good nutrition and get your body ready. Stop taking drugs and alcohol (laughs) 
And if you do catch COVID, your body be in a good situation then to deal with it, um, rather than just locking yourself away. Well, that's so that's exactly how I felt with cancer. And that's what started to make me realize that if I wanted to run better, then I better not put too much weight on. So suddenly you get rid of some of the fatty foods. And then I read stuff about cancer and, and veganism. So I kind of flirted and I still flirt a bit with veganism. I'm, I'm not, I'm a lazy vegan. I probably have 16, 17 meals of my 21 a week are probably veganish. That's a good way to and put yeah, it. A, li- li- a lazy vegan. I'm going to start using that. Yeah. Well, I so I try to have, I, I try to have a couple of meals a day that don't have anything other than vegan, you know, like vegan stuff in it. Um, avoid meat and dairy and things. But it's all about um, nutrition though, that, isn't it? It's about nutrition, yeah, getting those good minerals and that good nutrition in your body that it really needs. Yeah. Yeah. And being healthy. And, and that's, I realize that's what I need to do for my running. Because bizarrely, it's a bit like smoking, isn't it? If I tell you to stop smoking because it will give you cancer, that's not that's not a strong enough message for a lot of people. But you tell someone stop smoking because it'll give you cancer, and that means you might not see your three-year-old grow up. That's enough to make them change. So for me, to change just because of cancer wasn't enough. But to change because of cancer and running, that was loads. So that extra. So I need the running to go hand in hand with the cancer. To make my diet better and my oncologist even admitted to me now he said you know when you were first diagnosed it wasn't the norm to recommend people did exercise when they were starting cancer treatment now it's the complete opposite now they want people to exercise they prove that when you exercise when you're on chemotherapy you have less side effects and you tolerate it better so you know I, I, unbeknown to me i was doing the right thing um, without trying to be smart, I just because of what I was doing selfishly to run. But your mindset's a big thing as well, isn't it? The mind is such a powerful tool. You know, there's um, I don't want to say it's proven, but there are a lot of, of examples out there on how a positive mindset can help to heal your body. And by creating something ahead of you and having that purpose and having that positive um, mindset which is very difficult when you're going through that. But the difference of that than closing yourself in the room and grabbing a bottle of whiskey, as you said, and saying, like, there's no hope. You know, your body does react to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny, they've proved that having a negative mindset can end your life quicker. They haven't yet proved having a positive one will extend it. However, however, the logic must be there. Because how do you prove that someone lived long because they're positive? But that's, you can that's... prove someone died... That's everyday life, though, isn't it? That's whether yeah. you're struggling oh. with no matter what it is, you could be the most healthiest person in the world. But if you live a negative life, you will draw in negativity and you'll start living that life. You know, I, I feel I'm lucky. OK, so having a terminal diagnosis has meant I understand and appreciate every day as a gift. And, you know, I, when I was first diagnosed, I walked across Trafalgar Square going to work one day. And on, on the pavement in chalk, it said, you only have two lives. And the second one starts when you realize you only have one. And that's the whole point is we all, and I, I'm just as guilty as this. We all go around thinking we're going to live forever. We all think we'll keep on going. And it's an old adage that you know, life's not a rehearsal. It absolutely isn't. If you go around thinking, oh, I can do that next month, next year, five years time, 10 years time, maybe you can, but maybe you can't. And and that gap between now and 10 years time, what you, what you're going to fill it with, just work and 
you have to find ways of enjoying yourself, of, of being fulfilled and giving yourself a sense of worth. I think that's that's the key thing. When I was when I was running on chemo, I remember one day I was running and I had uh, headphones on, which I don't don't often wear. And there's an old song by Julian Lennon, uh, so John Lennon's son, called Saltwater. And uh, it's a great song. I've always liked it, but I never really listened to the words beyond the first couple of verses because you, know, you get a bit bored with words as a, as a song goes on. And here we were about three lines towards the end, and it said, "What will I think of me the day that I die?" And I had to just stop. I just I heard that I stopped, and I had to work out how to rewind it on an iPod because that's quite hard to rewind on an iPod. It was easy in a cassette, but not very. And I listened to it again. I said, "Did he, did he just sing what I thought he sang?" I thought that's it. I thought that's it. On my deathbed, whenever it might be, be it then in two years' time or whenever, I cannot look back from this moment on and have regrets. I had to look back on my life and say I was a good person. I didn't deliberately go out of my way to upset people, and I tried to make a difference. And even as you're popping your clocks, I think that would be a comfort to someone, to me, that I can think that. What I don't want to be doing is lie on my deathbed on those final days full of remorse and all the things I should have done and never could have done when it was within my gift to do it. And that's the point. I'm not trying to say we can all be astronauts because we can't, but we can all do something. I've done a few presentations over my time since I've been ill. And people come up to me and they say, well, Kevin, I don't run. So it's all right for you. I said, oh, you missed the point. It's not about running. If ever you wanted to learn Spanish, be a better cook, do cross-stitch, serve as a car. doesn't matter what it is. Open, open up that small business, you? you know, selling yeah. bonds or anything yeah. at all. You know, there's always that, oh, I'd love to be able to do that. I'd love to be able to do that. Do you know what we'll do? We'll, we'll go back to the Marathon de Sables, okay? Because that's where it really started. Um, and, like, h- how was your training coming up to that? For the 12 months, because you had all that chemo and you had all of this, this was something, you know, this is the one race you know, if I can do this thing that I've always longed to do and dreamt about doing. I think I finished chemo and I had to have radiotherapy and I was running a bit because I'd done a couple of marathons. And in those days, it's only we're talking 2015, in those days there weren't all the YouTube videos there are now. There weren't all the forums that exist that for the marathon disciples. Whereas nowadays, if you, say, if you Google marathon disciples, you can... F- you can find every bit of kit, every bit of help, every bit of training, but it just didn't exist only only five years ago. So I um, I found Rory Coleman, a coach, and uh, Rory has done loads of marathon disciples, he's run loads of marathons, um, and he has a, a methodology to help you get through the MDS. And I saw him twice, and it was brilliant. It was brilliant because he showed me how I could do it. So he may not be everyone's kind of coach, but for me, he, he took all the myths out of the way. He said how simple it was. He showed me all the kit that all I ever had seen was in magazines or talked about. He actually was the kit. I understood now what I'd be carrying, what I'd be using. Um, and why, and, was, and why as well that you needed And it. why, yeah, yeah. And he gave me, you know, told me how to take my toes and all this. So he just made all these things that would otherwise have been in my head so much easier and gave me a, a training plan which to be honest was too much for me you know the training plan was was too aggressive for, for my abilities both anyway and the fact i was on cancer drugs 
Um, and, it, and there were things in it that were wrong for me. So here's a thing called a power hour where you run on a treadmill for an hour, where you up and down the speeds for an hour. For someone like me, that's just no good. For some people, that's great, but for me, it was no good. And I ended up getting injured, in fact, doing that. So I had to then go back to a different pathology. We recommended I entered a couple of races. One was um, I did the race of the stones that year, so that was good. Uh, I did it in 250k stages rather than 100k. I then entered Druids, uh, which is a great XNRG race, three-day race along the Ridgeway. So it's the same course as Race of the Stones, really, only a bit longer. Um, but uh, about about a month before, I started having knee problems. I had an MRI on my knee, and basically, I sat in front of the doctor, and he said, look, and he showed me the picture, and he said, that, MRI, that knee is knackered. He said, you won't be able to run on that. He said, you will not be able to run on that again. He said, and he showed me, and there were all these areas. He said, that's either arthritis, or it's the cancer drugs, or both, or overuse. So he said, but I'll tell you what, have nine weeks, do not run for nine weeks, and then we'll see what happens. We'll have another MRI scan, and we'll have another look. So I already entered the Druids and I couldn't run it because it was the middle of nine weeks. So I marshaled and that's great. I'd say if ever someone can't run because they're injured, just go and volunteer. It was fantastic. Is, is that even better than running sometimes? You see more people. If you're on a checkpoint, you have a chat with everyone that comes through you and say, well done. It's, it's, it's a really, really good thing to do. And in the right race as well, I just really, really enjoyed it. All the joy you know, without the pain. Indeed. Indeed, although although it's a, it's a challenge, you know, you have to understand that you will be fed last, and you'll go to bed last, and you'll be up first. And it's, there are challenges to marshalling in a multi-day race, but it's well worth doing. I loved it. So back to Druid. So of course, one of the one of the problems about being injured is that my wife and I knew how much it mattered to me. It gave me a purpose to live, a purpose to eat healthily, to stay fit, you know, not do all the wrong things, do more of the right things. I'd started raising money for Prostate Cancer UK. That gave me a sense of worth. I was done to a few presentations. That made me feel like I was helping other families not be where mine is going to be and where mine is right now. So I, I, all the all the injuries and illness and stuff going on the way, I, it, it was I was distraught. I was in tears again. You know, I'd gone, I got through the tears. I thought, and suddenly I'm scared again. And I went back and saw the doctor. He gets the MRI, put it next to it. He said, look. And everything had gone, all the wrong things had gone. He just said, that shows me, one, the power of rest. He said, because you clearly hadn't run for nine weeks, I told you to. And secondly, he said, I don't know what. He said, something's happened, and I can't tell you what's happened. And I don't know what that was. I don't know whether that was the cancer drugs actually doing some good to it, and I'm on steroids as well, so maybe the steroids were helping. I don't know. But I, could, I was free to run again. Yeah, a bit of self-belief. So now, but then here we are now, though, in start of December, and of course the MGS is in April, and I haven't run for two months. And when I'd run before that, I was a bit injured, so I was hobbling and not going very far. So I had to very gently pick up my training. Then I ended up back in hospital again with no immune system. So that put me back a couple of weeks. And I remember I got to the, I think it was the 8th of April 2016, and I remember putting my foot on the runway at Wazazat, where you get off the plane, just absolutely like a pig in shit, because I never ever thought I would get there. I wasn't right then. I did not care if I never finished it. A year and a bit before, I never ever thought I'd be there. I thought by then I'd be in a wheelchair or in bed dying, and instead, I've got my foot 
on the ground in Morocco where I've never been before, about to take on this beast of a race with no idea whether I'd finish or not. It didn't matter. The jeopardy was there. But I, I've always, in my mind, I succeeded by just getting there. And then, of course, the NDS itself. I mean, I don't know, I could talk about the NDS forever. I love that race. It's the people you meet, the, the sun, the, the sand, the, the adversity, even going to the toilet. Those things are. I've got a friend, Craig, who's done it with me a few times. That is the race. Um, and we have this thing now about in the morning, we always share a tent when we go and do it the same year. And you squat down in a dune watching the sunrise at half five in the morning. Ever since humans have existed, that's what happens. If you want to go back to what life is and strip it down bare, that is you can't get more, much more basic than the sun rising and you having a dump. And I know it sounds a bit gross, but there is something quite... There's something quite um, innate, regenerative. Yeah, we're regenerative about it. You just feel like you're part of the world. It's just, it's just amazing. And but and that, it, that it is was, almost, it is almost ultra running that you're describing there, in a roundabout yeah, way. Yeah, you I know, mean, stripping yourself down from the noise of the world that we currently live in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, I can that race in particular sticks in my head. I remember on about it was a long day, and I was about twenty. 23, 24 miles in, there was still probably 30 to go. I'm on this, there's a massive salt flat. There was no one around me. We, it was so far into the race that we spread out a lot. And I was on my own. And my shoulders were absolutely killing. My pack is always too heavy on races. I take too many luxury things. Because it is, so, it is self-sufficient though. You have to carry all your Self-sufficient. Food. Yeah. But I carry all my food and spare food and spare everything and spare batteries and you name it. I far too, I probably five kilos too much of gear. So my pack weighed about 11 and a half kilos. And, um, and my feet, I had a king size blister on my foot that, bur- that burst and was bleeding. And I remember just starting, you know, tears is a common thing for me nowadays. I never used to cry much, but the drugs that one actually make you cry more. They make, they make you much more emotional. And I was stopped there and I thought, I can't go on. I cannot go on. It was almost like that moment on the Orpington Marathon again. When if a car came past now, I'll get in and I'll just go. But the difference was, I said, I can't go. And I thought, if I, but if I stop now, everyone that's helped me get here, my wife who sacrificed money and time to let me train, my doctor, my physio, even Rory Coleman that put some energy into me, I'm letting them down. And then add to the fact I've been sponsored by loads of people, I'd feel a fraud. And finally, I had this real burning desire to prove to other people with any kind of challenge in their life, especially prostate cancer, but any challenge, that you only give up when it's physically not possible. If mentally you can do it, you you keep on going, you keep on going. And that's what I needed. Since I've done that, I've, I've, read, a, I've read a book by, and I can't remember who, an American ultra runner, and he talks about things, it's called the what and the why. And he says, you have to know why you're doing something, and you have to, you train for it, so before you do an ultramarathon, think about why you're going to do it. You're doing it because, as in my case, I want to prove to people with cancer that you can do it. I want to raise other money to sort of people getting cancer. I want to get the bling, you know, whatever the reason is. And then you, you store that. You, and then the moment when you start having those feelings, you then whack it out of your backpack and you remind yourself why you're doing the damn thing. And so the quicker you can get it out, the more likely it is you'll get rid of why the hell am I doing this and you'll be back on in the groove again. Anyway, that's, uh, so no, I, I did that, um, 
fantastic finish that you're day. talking about the long day there like because you've already done a marathon monday tuesday and wednesday and this is the cruel thing about mds <laughs> they have the hump day on the fourth day you know the double marathon like because the temperatures what type of temperatures is it in the desert it gets up to about 50 degrees centigrade but that's remember that's in the shade i mean in the sun it's way way above that mm. You know, you're carrying your heavy pack, you've got the sand, and it's not like people think. You know, you talked about a salt flat there, but there's a lot of hills in MDS. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not like you I expect. Mean, the, the salt flat was um was actually one of the hardest bits because we came off a big dune, and you see anything, oh, it's great, it's flat, and I can run on it. Well, number one, I couldn't run on it because I was so knackered. <laughs> number two, and this is the bit that, because it's white from the salt, the heat reflects, it was about two o'clock, the sun was just bouncing off of the floor straight up into your face. So even though you had a peak on your cap, your face was in bright light because it was bouncing off. So you were just so hot. It just in, incredible. The heat is just absolutely incredible out there. But it's just but it's a battle that we know, because lots of people manage to finish the race, can be done by amateur runners. Because that's, you know, I'm a pathetic amateur runner. And if I can do it, then what's stopping other people doing it? And, and what you realise is, is is that you have a chance when you're out there to, to be a force for good amongst your tent mates. Because some of them want to give up. Some of them, you know, I've got bad blisters, oh, you know, my food's no good. I, I always bring with me a cooker. I always bring tea and coffee. And I always bring loads and loads of paraffin blocks. So I, I save them for that, that, that day or that morning when there's a guy in the tent who's looking really down and I go and make him a cup of coffee. Because I love it. I love to see their face. Do you want a coffee? And they go, oh. Well, I haven't got any. I haven't got a cooker. No, I, yeah, but I bought a spare fuel tab just for you, and I bought a, a coffee bag just for you. And you just see how it changes them. And, and the biggest change I can ever remember in, in someone is my friend Nick. So there's a guy called Nick Butter, who's famous for other reasons, we'll come on to. And he sat down with me on the, the day after the long day, and uh, you have a day off, effectively. And he was telling about, he's tw about 26 at the time, he was saying, that when I'm... 30, I'm going to do this amazing challenge. When I'm 35, I'm going to do this. When I'm 40, I'm going to do that. When I'm 45, I'm going to do the other. I looked at him and said, what are you on about? I said, what are you waiting for? I said, don't wait till you get a rubbish diagnosis like I did before you realise you've got to do things now. Do not put them off. Anyway, that chance conversation. Two years later, we're having another chat face-to-face -face at Waterloo Station. He tells me, oh, I've done this crazy thing I'm going to do. What's that? Well, Kevin, I've given up my job. And he, he was a six-figure earner, so he had a good job for a youngster. Giving up my job, and I'm going to run a marathon in every country of the world. 196 marathons. Nick Butter, legend. Because of me, though, he said it was all because of you. He said, you made me realise if I carried on the path I was on, next thing I'd have got married, had kids, bought a house, had a mortgage. I couldn't have done all those things. Whereas right now, I was free to do what I wanted to do. And I need to do it. And he said, would you mind if I raised money for Prostate Cancer UK? I said, that would be amazing. So Nick, Nick's raised close to £200,000 for the charity. His last marathon was this time last year, the Athens Marathon. And me and another few of my mates and the tent mates from that year, about four of us from that tent that year, so five years hence, we all fly up to, marathon, up to Athens of our own expense and run the last marathon with him. I mean, wow. it's just amazing 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 weekend and just crossing the line with him there's about 20 of us all with prostate cancer uk shirts on cross that finish line at the pananthium in athens where 
probably about 50 supporters out there as well. It just was an incredible experience. And because of Nick, you know, I, I am grateful for Nick for so many reasons, but even just doing that one day was amazing. And I love, I, I, think I absolutely love, like, as you were talking there, I was getting hairs and shivers in the back of my neck and my <laughs> shoulders. I could feel it because there's that element of, and it's all about goal setting really, but when that seed's planted, you know, and days like that manifest from that seed, like that is a yeah. beautiful thing. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and he's actually he's a plug for his book comes out. Uh, you can buy it now on Amazon. Actually, coming up the eleventh of November, and I can't wait to read it because it's just going to be some of the things that happened to him. You have to get him on your podcast if you haven't already. Because I did. I sent uh, I sent him a message, and he never come back to me. So there's uh, another plug, well, Nick. When you're listening to this, shame on you. Oh <laughs> uh, well, Nick, I, Nick, I'll be chasing you. Um, um, but yeah. it is it doesn't matter at what level and it's and you can take goal setting down as basic as you want but you know if you can think it and you write it down you can manifest anything you want everybody's got that power you know to do that or got that strength and it becomes like it's like running it could be doing a park run for example as simple and the basic of that if i decide okay i'm gonna build myself up to do a 5k park run you know and i'm gonna do it in the next 12 weeks and you do a little plan in 12 weeks time, you know, you cross that line. It's a very powerful thing because then you wonder, well, what else can I do? What else can I do? And you can take it to the extremes that Nick done. But what happens is I find the bigger that the bigger it is, the more legs, excuse the pun, <laughs> the more legs it grows and more and more people. And it starts building this own energy, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Nick at the moment, he's on day 52 of he's running 100 marathons in 100 days, running the length of Italy. So he's halfway to Italy at the moment um, in COVID. So he's a brave man, but uh, but we know that. So so the, the MDS, so I, you know, I, I finished. I think I finished 560 second out of 1,200 runners, and that's and again, I'm not someone that gives a stuff about where I come. But why that's important is, is to say to people, if unfit Kev can do that and come halfway down the the, the field, then what's stopping anyone? You know, what is stopping anyone doing that race? Because, you know, the people I met along the way, I mean, Duncan Slater, the the, uh, the soldier who lost his legs in Afghanistan, you know, he didn't finish that year. Day four, sand got into his stumps, all septic, you know, I felt, you know, I think everyone felt for the guy. He had his heart set on doing it. But you know what? In 2017, when he went back and I went back again, he finished it. So it was, you know, he, he went back and he actually did it. I've, I've that race to me means so much because every year I do it is like another year of life. So I, I did it in 2016 and 2017 and 2018 and 2019. And I would have done it this year as well. But COVID got in the way and it was cancelled. So what did I do? I thought, I know, I'll do it in my back garden. So I ran 2,600 laps in my back garden. Did exactly the same format as the the um, MDS. So I did a marathon on Sunday, a marathon Monday, a marathon Tuesday, double marathon Wednesday. On Thursday, I had to, had to do a run because at the moment I'm running every day of the week. Uh, I'm on a, on a non-stop running challenge. So I had to run on my day off as well. Marathon on Friday, half marathon Saturday. And what was great about that was it, it grew because I was doing it on my own. Um, I ran about 252K in the end. But people started finding out I was doing it. I had the local scout group. And on the last day, they had 25 scouts and cubs all running 5K around their own gardens. I had friends who hadn't ever run before in their life doing the last 10K with me, but they were walking. 
again, on their own, in their garden. And other people, there's a running club, the Sussex Striders, who I didn't even know about. Sorry, Saxon Shore Striders. Sorry, Sussex Striders. The Saxon Shore Striders. Didn't know any of them at all. They found out about it. They were all doing it. There was about 20 of them all running around their gardens, doing miles for me every week. It was just fantastic. Um, so I was really, really pleased I inspired people to do that in lockdown because I think they were all thinking you can't do anything in lockdown. And that's, that, again, that was part of my reason for doing it, not just because I wanted to do it for myself, but because I wanted to prove people that you haven't got to give up. And here we are again in another form of lockdown in the UK and just find something else. I mean, today for me was I think day 321 of consecutive running. Um, you just, why stop? Why stop? It's, imp why it's, important to, it's important to note as well, when you've done that in your garden, you were maybe... How long? Five and a half years into your diagnosis of only two years left yeah. to live. Um, and you raised about, how much did you raise? And that was like £33,000 or something. Oh, yeah, on that, yeah, on that, yeah, just on that, on that, on that week I raised yeah, thirty three grand, which is, um, but it's just, which I've, I've raised lots of money, but that was amazing in a week. It's just a positivity, like, you know, it's it draws positivity and it, you, you're almost this beacon of light you know, to show people that it is possible, you know, if you have the right mindset, like, cause you could have, you could, you were at a T junction right at that point after a couple of months. Um, you know, do you lock yourself in a room as you say with a bottle of whiskey or do you stop pursuing something? And I, I think it's important for everybody, no matter if you're dealing with a disease or not, because life doesn't go on forever. It's not infinitive. You know, we've all got an end point, whether it's, we know, or potentially know when that's going to be or not. Because nobody knows when it's going to be. You know, it could be, for me, it could be in a year's time, hopefully not, but it could be at any time. But having that realisation that it is going to end at some point and really, you know, trying to get as much out of life as possible. And don't... Like, today's a very important day. Every Indeed. day. Every day is Indeed. a very important day in your life. And you can get very complacent with that. Um, but the older you get, obviously, some people, as it comes back to that statement, you say, you know, you've got two lives um, and you're, the second one starts when you realize you've only got one. It really is about that. Some people never work that out. Some people are very lucky if they hit 40 that they work that out and they start living their life. Yeah, I think that's, um, I, I've, I've always liked music. And there's a song by another song by Pink Floyd called Time off the Dark Side of the Moon album. And, you know, if, if ever you want something to kick yourself up the backside about wasting time, listen to that album because that track is just amazing. And, then, and there's a line in that that says, and then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. And that's exactly it. You know, that's what you, you go through life like it's going on forever. And then suddenly you're not 20 anymore, you're 30 or you're 40 or you're 50. You think, where those 10 years go? And you look back and say, what did I do in those 10 years? Well, I worked. And yeah, I've, I've, I've got a family now and I have spent time with the kids, but actually you didn't ever achieve what you wanted to. When I, when I was first diagnosed, people were saying to me, um, it's okay, what's on your bucket list? And I said, I've only got one thing on my bucket list. And they said, what's that? says the marathon disciples. I said, no, but what, what else? You must have something else. I said, but why? I said, I'm, I'm not trying to be big-headed, but I generally lived my life doing things I wanted to do all the way through. I didn't think, didn't tend to put things off. If it was important, I did it. If it wasn't important, I didn't do it. So don't get me wrong, it's not that I, I, I know, I had no burning desire to go parachute jumping. But if I did, why is that on a bucket list? 
Why is that not something you do today? Why are you putting that off to when you find out you're going to die? It doesn't make sense to me. You know, if you want to have a tattoo, you just go and have it done. Don't wait until someone says, oh, we've only got three months to live, Kev, so you better have a tattoo now. It, it doesn't make sense to me. You, you've got to, if, you, if it's within your power to do it now, do it now. Or find a way to do a mini version of it. So I, I met a guy once who wanted to do some crazy cycling challenge across America. And I know why he couldn't. He didn't have the money or the time and he had a family. I get that. But I then said to him, but you could always go and do a few days of it. Can you have a family holiday out in America? You can afford that. Then why don't you just do it near that place and just go and spend the weekend where you cycle to talk to them. He says, I'm sure she'll be fine. And sure enough, that's what he did. He, d he didn't do the whole thing, but he had a go at it the best way he could. And that's what it is. It's not always, you haven't got to win the trophy. Just having a go is good enough. And, you know, the, the Mountain of Sables for me was, with my bucket list thing, but I got back in it and it was like, what do I do now then? And the first thing that happened was I entered the next year because um, I got back and I crossed the finish line and I thought, never, ever again will I visit the Sahara. And then literally two or three hours later, I was thinking, oh, I don't know, I wouldn't mind. And then I was on the plane and Steve Didrick, the guy that runs it from the UK side, I said, Steve, if I could get a place for next year, is it possible? He said, yeah, I always hold a few places back for, for people that have done this year, just in case they want to sign up. And I got home and thought, I can't ask my wife about it. She'd just, it'd just be unfair. I, mean, we had, I remember I'd been home about half an hour. And she said, uh, so have you signed up for next year yet? I said, no. She said, no, you, know, you need to. And I said, why? And she said, because. And then she said exactly what we've been saying. She said, because it gave you a reason to live. It gave you a reason to train, to be positive. Every day, you got up with a smile. Now, one of the beauties of running every day, as I do now, is that every day I run, which I love, and every day I plan where I'm going to run tomorrow, which I also love. So I get two bits of pleasure every day out of running. So like, you know, I ran today, I only did 5k today, I did 30k yesterday, tomorrow I'm going to do 15k, and I'm, at some stage this afternoon I'll start thinking, where should I run? And I go, do I want hilly or flat? Do I want water? Do I want grass or road? It's great, I love it. So running every day, once you get past about 30 days, you no longer think, am I going to run today? It's where am I going to run today and how long? Habit. I, ne I never ever think. Yeah, it's just it, habit, it's isn't it? Habit. It's habit. Um, so Marathon to Salvas, you've done it four times, hashtag five times, because you've done it in your garden <laughs> as well. Luckily, it wasn't as warm there. Um, but you talk there. Did I hear you talking about the Yukon there? Yeah, so if I go, I'll, I'll be brief because I can go on forever, as you were experiencing about where I love to run. But So I, I after that race in the MDS, when you meet people, they talk about other races because you never hear about another one. And you think, oh, that sounds quite cool. Well, that sounds good. And so in my tent was a guy, he said, oh, I'm going to do the fire and ice race in Iceland. And I thought, oh, that sounds, well, that's okay. So the next year, did the MDS again, 2017, and I did Fire and Ice. And I did a race in Spain called Al Andalus Ultima, which is, if ever you want the best value multi-stage ultra overseas, that's it. 900 euros for a week's racing, including three days in a hotel, all the accommodation, all the tents. You even get fed two nights when you're actually on the course. Amazing, 900 euros, can't beat it. All you got to do is pay for a flight to Malaga. So that is probably the best value race going. Um, and then I got back and I thought, well, where do I go next? I've been to Iceland, obviously the MDS. And I thought, well, I've done all the XNRG races and I've run those other ones in the UK, sort of single day um, ultras. 
I thought, well, I don't know, there's this one in Albania. That sounds a bit wicked. So a company called Global Limits, they did a race in Albania. Awesome race, hot, dusty, amazing people, amazing countryside, place you'd never, I'd never ever dream of going to Albania. I did that and they, and they had one in Cambodia, so I went to Cambodia. Again, very flat course, but my word, is that hard. 40 degrees, massive humidity, hot, just, you know, sleeping in mosquito nets, etc. Um, kind of things. Well, oh, I did uh, Ultra X race in Jordan. That's very similar to the MDS, only less people. So that's an awesome race. I was supposed to go to Bhutan this year and do um, Global Limits race there, but that was called off due to COVID. They put in a new race, and it's called um, in Saatome. Now, Saatome is a tiny African country off the coast of Africa on the equator, and it's a jungle race. And I did that in February this year, just before lockdown started, and that was an amazing race. I mean, just there was only about eight of us running. I'm just sitting thinking of if you were a doctor, you know, and you were writing a script for somebody who's going through chemo <laughs> and recovering it, and they wrote this on the script. Yeah, I just want you to go ahead and do this. <laughs> you got plenty of vitamin D anyway with all the sun. Yeah, well, but I mean, Saatomi was just awesome. But if you, it was dusty tracks. It was unspoiled. It was a Portuguese colony. And the scary bit was on day one, I was on my own up this trail and suddenly this thing fell in front of me. I thought, what's that? It was a black cobra two yards away and it reared its head up, you know, like looking at me and I thought, oh my God. And I'd read about black cobra before I got there. It basically is instant death. You're not going to leave if you get bitten by a black cobra. And I managed to sort of skirt around the path on the edge of it. And I went about half a K down the path and I suddenly thought, I've got to go back. I thought there were two girls behind me, and if I don't go back and warn them, they're going to run straight into it. So I went back. Cobra was there looking at me, and away. You come back for some more, have you? You know, and, and I kind of gingerly went to the so I could see these girls coming in the corner, and I said to them, I said, "Come on the outside and just go slowly." And they, why? I said, just, "Just trust me." And they went past, and sure enough, the, the snake was still there, and oh, scary. But that's why all the locals wear big welly boots and they carry a machete all the time. <laughs> snakes but awesome race and you finished on the beaches and the actual final finish was on the equator now I've never been south of the equator before but actually to finish line actually is the equator line and that is just an awesome place to finish Brilliant. fantastic so why the cold why did you then select because it sounds like everywhere you're going to is pretty nice and warm and well hot shall I say not nice and warm and then you so is totally <sighs> it's a totally different crazy Totally different level of crazy, that's the way to put it. Okay. So people will tell me I'm wrong with this statement, but I think you make the best friendships on the Marathon de Sables opposed to the other races. Why is that? It's because on that race, there's a tent of eight of you, the tent is open, it's hot. You see other people go by, it's so hot you want to spend the whole time in the tent. There are other races I've done, I met some amazing people in every race, don't be wrong, but like Far and Ice, Far and Ice was eight in a tent, but it was so miserable the tent was always zipped up. We were also cold in our ceiling bags all the time. It was wet and terrible. It, was, it wasn't so conducive to have those great relationships, whereas the MDS kind of creates those great relationships. The reason I say that is so the people I've met there, they in, inspire me every year to do different things. And one of those guys is a guy called Stuart Thornhill. And Stuart, Stuart I met, bumped into out there. Um, he 
they got involved with a running shop which sadly is closed called Likey's in uh, Brecon Beacons in Brecon. Sadly it's closed now. Um, it's Amazon for you. Internet sales killed uh, the shop, which is a shame. But he and Likey's got, were involved in this race, a 6633 Arctic Ultra. And he said to me, why don't you do it? And I thought, oh, I don't know. So I looked at it, I thought, oh, why not? Hey, just go for it. And there are, there's, there's basically three, a choice of three races. There's a 120 mile race, there's a 380 mile race, and there's a 120 plus mile race, which means you do 120 and then you can decide whether you carry on. But if you carry on, you're no longer in the 120 mile race. So it's kind of a big, it's a bit of a big decision that one. So I went out there and it's my, it's, it's minus 50. You're pulling a sledge. You've got all your provisions in the sledge. The sledge probably weighs about 50 kilos. It's, I mean, blizzards like you would not believe. It's, it's massive hills over mountains. This thing called Wright's Pass, which is incredible to get over. Pull the sledge over that's hard enough as it is. And there's only about 25 of you in the race, so you split up pretty early on and you're on your own. And it's a non-stop race. So unlike the Marathon Disciples, where every night, every day is a new race, with this it's not. So you start about 10 o'clock in the morning, and the first time you stop is probably 3 in the morning. So you've actually been, and then I'm on my own, and I remember, I remember very clearly, it was day two, I was so tired. I was petrified about wolves and polar bears. I'd been hallucinating. I'd seen this filing cabinet by the side of the road, and I was thinking, what nasty piece of work, fly, fly tips in the Arctic. Of course it wasn't there at all, it was a hallucination. Anyway, I found this bit of snow that had no footprints on it. And I thought, great, I'm gonna stop here tonight. So all you do is you roll your roll mat out, you put it in the snow, you get in your sleeping bag and a little bivy bag thing, and you're in the snow and that's it. There's no one with you. You've got some flashing lights on your sledge. I thought I'd try and get three hours sleep. So I lay there trying to get three hours sleep. Couldn't sleep. Absolutely, my head was wired. I was so tired, but I was wired. And then I heard someone go past, and I heard someone else go past, and someone else go past. I lay there, and I must have—I was there for three hours, didn't sleep. Heard about seven people go past. So all right, give it up now. Got up as I got out the tent. My tent was surrounded by footprints. Only one person had gone past me. The rest of it was footprints and they were either wolves or arctic lynx or arctic fox just going round and round my sleeping bag i had no idea what they were <laughs> and if i wasn't spooked before i was then um actually it gave me a bit of confidence because at least it meant they didn't actually try and eat you when you were in a sausage because there are um, there are quite a lot of risks out there with animals moose is a big risk yeah, moose, people, moose, isn't it? yeah. big beasts yeah. of animals yeah, moose are something to um, behold. They are enormous. To be fair, and all the years that race has carried on, people have seen wolves. I think people have seen moose from a distance. No one's seen a polar bear, but it doesn't stop you thinking they're going to be there. And and the race, the, the fight, the race actually ends in a place called Tuktoyuk, which is on the Arctic coast, where where basically the Yukon ends and the Arctic Ocean starts. And I did a couple of presentations to the school kids there, and uh, I did my presentation it was great and they said oh can we show you our video now because I've shown a video of me running in the heat and stuff I said yeah sure what's it about so it's the day the polar bears came to town and there's it and all these webcams they've got set down this village in in the Yukon where uh, there's only about 
600 people live there. There's only there are two shops, there are two supermarkets, nothing else, no hairdressers, no banks, no cafes, just these two supermarkets, that's it for the people. There's no really jobs there either. And these webcams have got these three polar bears who come into town and they're like teenagers who've had too much to drink. And they're knocking off car wing mirrors and they're just being riotous. And then of course the locals have to chase them out of town. So they're all in their cars chasing these polar bears out of town. But I mean, they, I mean, they, they're dangerous, they are killers. But it was quite funny, the kids are really excited about these polar bears that come to wreck their town. It's, so, it's, quite, a, it's but, quite an amazing journey you've been on though in the last six years, you know, since your diagnosis. Um, it's quite coincidental that we're having the podcast today, which is Remembrance Sunday. Um, you mentioned <laughs> that you, um, that was the day you told your children six years ago that you'll only have two years left to live. If, you, if somebody had given you a crystal ball you know, back then, um, on that day, you know, when you'd gone out and played football with your kids, like you said, look, this is what you're going to experience over the next six years. You know, it'd been really, really difficult to comprehend that. You've lived an amazing lifetime within those six days as it is. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have believed him. That's the, the it's funny, when, I, when my oncologist, or urologist rather, told me that I might be dead in two years, I remember being you know, very upset and then feeling a, a bit of anger about life, you know, like, oh, I have so much more to do in life, even though I didn't think I wasted my life. And then you get to two years and then you realise every day is a gift. So I'm really pleased you said two years. The worst thing you could have said to me is you'll have six years and then you might go downhill afterwards because it, it was a real wake-up call. And that's the bit about the two lives realizing only have one. You know, when people listen to this podcast, I I hope that if nothing else, they think about they write a list of the things they want to do in life, and they start ticking them off, because that's that's what it's about. It's about not waiting. If you can do it now, do it now. If you can't do it now, you can't. You know, if you haven't got the money, or whatever. That's that's a different sort of ballgame. But if you can do it, do it now. And I think that's the thing for me. I don't ever let chances go. So a good example is. Before I was ill, if someone phoned me up and said, Kev, do you want to go to the pub tonight? And I've been out last night. I might have said, no, it's all right. I'll see you on Saturday. Now, if someone says, do you want to go to the pub tonight? I'm there. I mean, I won't be in COVID, of course, but you know, normally speaking, I'll be there. Why would you ever turn down an opportunity to do something? Because you never know if you have that one again. And that's the point. You never know what could happen. So you talked about you know, a year longer, you, you, you will live. No offence, it could be tomorrow. You know, we don't know... If something's going to land on our house tonight, out of the sky, or we're going to get knocked over by a car, or we're suddenly going to have a massive heart attack, we don't know that. And the worst thing you could do is lie there knowing that you don't know that and having done nothing about it, but now it's too late. You know, I mean, my, my saying has been make the most of it, because that's it. Make, you know, whatever it is for you, you have to make the best of it. So if you are stuck in a mundane boring job you have to still make the most of it I, I, someone says to me well how could Kev, how can you be like this and i talked about chemo earlier on and no one's smiling you know what? after my first chemo session i smiled i made a point of going in there and looking at people and saying hello and i had to go back there again recently for um uh i've got weak bones as well the drugs have made my bones weak so i have to have a thing called zolandronic acid infusion and you do it in the chemo room which i didn't realize and i went in there and of course they're all miserable so I, put, I brought my iPad with me 
and I, I pulled around the trolley with the, the drugs in, showing them all my iPad, showing pictures of me running everywhere, and saying, this, this is what you can do. If I can do this with cancer. You know, I had my chemo a while ago, and I'm still here doing all this stuff. Um, you know, some, of the, some of the terrible facts about prostate cancer is one in eight men get prostate cancer. So if you're on a table and there's eight of you, you know, one in eight person is going to get it. And if, and if you're black, it's one in four. If your dad's had it, or your brother's had it, or your uncle's had it, it's one in four. So it is hereditary sometimes, not always, but sometimes. You, you double your odds of having it. Um, a, a man dies every 45 minutes in the UK. So I said, what, what in the 45 minutes? Yeah, I mean, you know, it kills like 11,000 men a year. That's quite, that's quite so, shock, shocking stats though, isn't it? So what sort of um, symptoms should people be looking out for? So, okay, so the classic symptom, and there is only one classic symptom, and that is getting up in the night and wanting a wee. Now, the, the good news is, so that's the right thing, is as a man gets older, their prostate tends to grow. So getting up in the night for a wee might just mean your prostate's growing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. That's just getting older. But it might be because the prostate's getting bigger because the tumour's growing on it and pushing on your bladder. And that's what makes you think you need to go to the toilet. So if you've had, if you had 10 pints of lager tonight and then, and then you go to the toilet all night, do you know why? It's because you had 10 pints of lager. That's absolutely fine. If, however... You didn't have 10 pints of lager and you go to the toilet and you only wee for two seconds but you're bursting and now you feel okay and an hour later you're bursting and you only wee for two seconds that's because something's pushing on your uh, on your um, bladder and that something could be an enlarged prostate in which case no worries it could be a tumor in which case better go to the doctors quick and the, the point about prostate cancer for me is that if you get seen by a doctor quick enough, it is curable. 82% of men on diagnosis are curable. So my dad was curable. 18% are unlucky like me. By the time you have it diagnosed, it's already spread. It's quite a slow growing cancer. So in my case, it's likely the tumor grew on the far side of my prostate and grew all the way through my prostate before it pushed on my bladder, which is why it was too late for me. And that's why I was unlucky. For most people, as soon as you get up in the night and get for a wee and you don't understand it, go to the doctor. And whilst you might say it's a man's disease, you know, you want to ask my wife that and my daughter. They've got a right now I'm like a firework, I'm burning bright, I'm having a whale of a time, I'm enjoying life. They've got to watch me slowly fade, slowly go out and die, and we've got to pick up the stick and bury it and then live afterwards. So if you're a lady watching this, it's just as important to you. And actually, if you've got a male partner, you're the one that probably see him get out of bed at night, and he's the lazy one that won't go to the doctors. So you need to make sure you book the appointment for him because you could be saving his life as well. Assume, of course, you want him to live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My wife might say, good, he's going to the bathroom. Um, yeah. But it's like, how much do you put down to like selecting those races because you're 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 so vibrant today, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't think that there was any underlying issues, or you'd been through what you'd been through, um, and you're four years past that time that you weren't meant to be here. Borrow time, if you like. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And how much bonus time? Bonus time. So how much you put that down to you know selecting these races and having those things to focus on in the future? Okay, so what I'm going to now say has no multi-million pound study fact on it, <laughs> but I've read stuff and it's what I believe, and therefore if it's what I believe, it's good enough for me. You can choose to go with it or not. So all cancer hates oxygen. Okay, that is a fact. So the more you can do to speed up the oxygen in your body, the better. So going for a run every day or doing some form of exercise that increases your heart rate is what you need to do because that will decrease your chances of getting any kind of cancer. So why do they say 10,000 steps a day? Is that just because that's good for your muscles? Rubbish. 10,000 steps a day is a number arbitrarily picked. But the point is, if you do those steps a day, it's increasing your blood flow. So I put it down to exercise every day. I put it down to diet because I try and avoid too much the wrong food. I try and avoid processed food. Um, I still drink, but I don't drink excessively. I might drink a couple of times a week. And maybe one of those might be a bit excessive, but that's it. I love life. I'm I am I'm a real fan of life, and I don't think I cared that much before, but now I absolutely love everything that life has. So I'm absolutely convinced that doing exercise will be good for you. And even my doctor said, he said to me, I can't tell you if you're going to stop your cancer by staying fit and healthy. He said, but what I can tell you is. The more healthy and the fitter you are, when the cancer has another go at you, you'll be stronger to fight it. You'll be able to tolerate the drugs better, and that might help you get through it. And we've all read stories in, in the paper sometimes where it says so-and-so had to have a heart operation or a lung operation, but they couldn't have it because they weren't fit enough and they were overweight. So why would you want to be overweight and unfit? If you want to give yourself the best chance of having the best life, then stay fit and healthy. That's amazing. You define the word inspiration. Um, you must have had, like, before we come onto the podcast today, I was thinking, like, wow, this is it. You know, this is the reason why I created the podcast to begin with. And it really was for people to share their stories and help inspire people that are struggling to get off the sofa or, or trying to do this or trying to do that. And um, when they see people like yourself, who are really struggling with something in the background, but still able to achieve these amazing things, makes us question, hmm, maybe I could do, maybe I could do a park run. You know, this guy's doing <laughs> the marathon to Savills. Maybe I can do a park run. And that's what the podcast was all about. You must have received a lot of, because even through the podcast, I get a lot of messages, you know, thanks, that podcast was brilliant. You know, it really helped me get up. You must receive a lot of amazing sort of um, messages from people that you've inspired. Yeah, I've never sat comfortably with being called inspirational. I, I do understand that I must be, because if I inspire someone to do something, therefore by definition I'm inspirational. And I do get a lot of people come up to me afterwards with lots of challenges in their life, and that's the bit I like. It's not just about prostate cancer. They realise that they haven't got to be miserable. And I'll just give you two examples that are both quite close to my heart. One is a guy at work who, um, I don't know, he just was following me, I, I write a monthly blog, and he was following my blog, and he emailed me and he said that Kevin, um, my daughter died a year ago, she was two years old, and I always wanted to cycle lands in John O'Groats, and my bike, just in, I haven't touched my bike since my daughter's died, and I'm just miserable and sad about it. 
that's that's all he said. He he wanted to tell me. I've learned that people need permission to speak. People aren't all like me with a big mouth. They need, if you go first, they will tell you their story. So don't ever be scared of telling your story to someone else. They might be waiting to feel comfortable they can share their story because you you shared yours. So I sat there thinking, well, I don't know you. And I I know what I want to say to you. And I'm going to take a risk. And And I don't believe in God, by the way, but I do believe we have an energy. I believe that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So I believe when we delay it, our spirit keeps on going. I can't tell you what that looks like, but I can tell you that's how I, that's what I believe. It's good enough for me. So I emailed him and I said, I can't promise you your daughter's spirit's there, but I believe it is. And if I was your daughter and I was looking down on you, I'd be bloody cross that you'd be miserable for a year. I said, I'd want you to get that bike out and go and cycle down to the Johnny Gropes. I said, because that's what I, that's what you should be doing. And she'd be so upset if you were ruining your life because she was dead. Don't don't forget about her, but don't not do things because you feel you shouldn't. So I pressed the send button, and I waited for some. I, I may have really offended him, you know. I didn't know what was going to come back. And two days later, he emailed me back and he said, "Kevin, I read your I read your note, and you're right. I'm now going to cycle down in John O'Groats and back. I'm going to do it both ways." He said, and um, would you mind if I did it for Children's Brain Cancer Trust instead of prostate cancer? I don't see it. I said, well, I said, to, I said to, would you, you know, would I mind? Of course I wouldn't mind. I just want you, I'd be delighted you just did it. So that was the first one. The second one, much, much quicker. I had a, I had a client at work um, who I thought I'd gotten quite well with, and I emailed my clients when I had prostate cancer and said, I'm sorry, I won't be around for a while. And I never heard from him again. And I thought, well, maybe I was just a supplier of his and, you know, he didn't really care about me, and so why, why should he write to me? I'm only the bank manager. And almost a year to the day later, I had an email from him saying, Dear Kevin, I'm really sorry I haven't written for a year. He said, But when you told me your story, I thought, well, I've got that symptom. So I went to the doctor, and I had prostate cancer. And because I got there when I did, I got there just in time, and it was early enough to catch it before it spread. He said, and The problem is, he said, that I'm going to live and you're going to die. And I just didn't know how I could ever tell you. Hope you don't mind. And I went back to him and said, well, what do you think it makes me feel like that I may have saved your life? You know, do you think I'd be upset that I may have saved your life? I don't worry about me. My situations can't be changed. So, you know, you're not exactly gloating, you know, I'm going to live you a die. But the point is that I may have saved you. And I know since that time, many, many, many men have come back to me with the same story because they hear this and they go, oh, I've got a symptom. And some people listen to your podcast will be 20 or 30 or 40 and and thankfully, at that age, you haven't really got to worry about prostate cancer. But if they've got a dad or a granddad or a friend, they should go and talk to them about it and say, do you know what, Dad, if ever you start getting on the night going for a wee, go to the doctors because it could be prostate cancer. You get it early, you're going to live, and I, and I want you to live. That's quite powerful. I think most dads would like to hear you say that. That's, I mean, that's a way of saying you love your father without saying I love your dad. <laughs> so that's quite a nice thing to do as well. It's all about awareness, isn't it? And that's one thing I definitely think we've brought across here today is about awareness, about prostate cancer, about it doesn't have to be the end of your life. In fact, it could be the very start of your life, which you have shown. Um, It's been absolutely amazing, Kevin. I really appreciate it. I know we we went on for almost like two hours. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But a lot of people that listen to this are ultra runners, so that's a winner in itself like um i will put in the show notes some links to your blogs and some links to um your charities 
because you obviously raise a lot okay, of money for you. prostate cancer. You have raised over, I think, two hundred fifty thousand pounds, isn't it? It's crazy amount yeah, of money. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've raised two hundred fifty thousand pounds myself, and what makes me more proud actually is that I have inspired other people to join me on races or do their own thing, like Nick Butter, and they've raised over half a million pounds. Mm-hmm. So you put the two together, and that's a whole lot of money. And you know, I was very honoured this year. I, I'm. I know not everyone likes this sort of thing, but I am a royalist and I am proudly British. And uh, I was awarded the British Empire Medal in the Queen's Birthday Honours List uh, recently. And that meant quite a lot to me because I don't, I said, I don't do things for medals and prizes and stuff. But the fact that people bothered to put me forward for it and the fact that they bothered, they looked at it amongst all the ones they get and say, actually, yes, you're worthy of having such a thing was quite amazing. There is a downside to getting an honour like that, though. And the downside is that if I had any thoughts of ever giving up, I can't now, can I? Yeah, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I only wear in a bank shoes. It's funny, I, um, I've had many other shoes in the past. I'm sure they, they work for other people. But when I trained for the Arctic Ultra, my um hit my uh, arches collapsed because the training for the Arctic Ultra is a lot of long distance walking, pulling a tire, and it's a very different foot gait. If you're doing 10, 12 hours a day of tire pulling, you do change the way your foot behaves, and I ended up having my arches collapsed. And the only shoes I can find that don't have arches, although they still have a drop, is Innovates. So I've only been wearing Innovates for the last three years, and I wrote to them and I just said, look, I wear your shoes. I don't want anything from you at all. But I would love to, if I could share my message about prostate cancer, I'd be honoured. And they came and said, yeah, just go and do it then. So I did. So I'm grateful for them for having a, a corporate responsibility that allows me just to talk about prostate cancer and hopefully inspiring people to get out there and do their own thing. Because that's one thing about the money being raised. That's only one side to that. What's more important is the awareness than the money. Yeah. Um, Kevin, that's been brilliant. Thanks very much. Appreciate that. I absolutely love this podcast. Kevin is a great example of the mind achieves what the mind believes. I wish him all the best in the future and look forward to seeing how he progresses through 2021. He's got a brand new Just Given page. I'm going to put it in the show notes, so check that out. We've had a few mic issues over the last couple of episodes, so had to replace some kits, so hopefully we can deliver a better sound as we move into 2021. I have some excellent guests lined up, so super excited. I just hope that we can start getting some racing done soon, as I am getting a lot of stick for talking about the Race of the Zones and CCC. There you go, guys. You thought I was going to go through an episode without talking about it. How wrong were you? Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, More Mountain Adventures. We have some good alternatives to keep you in the mountains during the lockdowns. And if you haven't already, why not check out the Inspirational Ronda podcast on Facebook. That's it for me. So until next week, stay safe and keep on moving.